Welcome back to The Blue Gab. I'm Amelia Ickes, and I'm joined today with this week's co-host, Brendan Foley. Brendan, can you tell me a little bit more about yourself? Sure. Um, thanks, Amelia, for having me. My name's Brendan Foley. I'm a senior at Tufts. I'm majoring in international relations and economics. I'm living right now, I'm from Massachusetts, and I'm living on my off-campus apartment in Medford right now. Um, and I joined, I applied to the Blue Lab because I was interested in learning more about what was happening at the local level in Massachusetts, um, which candidates to support, and just learning what um, sort of legislation is happening at the State House. In addition, I saw that um, the Blue Lab was actively campaigning for ranked choice voting, and this summer I was um, part of the campaign for Massachusetts' fourth election or fourth congressional district, and the results of that, having nine candidates running, made me passionate about ranked choice voting, and I'm excited to be campaigning for that this fall. Awesome, and we're excited to have you on the Blue Gap this week. This week's episode of the Blue Gap, we will be talking with Scott Fairson. He is the founder of Liberty Square Group and the Blue Lab, and former press secretary for Senator Ted Kennedy. And this week, we'll be discussing the implications for Ruth Bader Ginsburg's recent death, President Trump's nomination of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court, and Ted Kennedy's 1987 speech, Robert Bork's America. So, Scott, could you give us a little background of the speech? Like, when did it happen? Why did it happen? What were the circumstances? Sure. So there was there was concern. I mean, I think with the passage of Roe v. Wade in in uh, in, in uh, or the, the court uh, decision in Roe v. Wade in seventy two, there's always been this sort of epic battle on big big issues that that the, that uh, the court certainly had taken before then as it related to race and other things. But this one uh, was was stark, and it was at the time that the Equal Rights Amendment was trying to be passed and failed. Um, so you you had this pitch battle there, and the court, I think was politicized in that way because of that decision, because you've got people who opposed the decision Roe v. Wade saying that, that the court had uh, was, was, was sort of legislating and stepping into the realm that should be left to the legislative branch. And so, and then you have Ronald Reagan elected in 1980 and uh, people like me, our heads exploded. Uh, seems quaint now to think that my head exploded over Ronald Reagan with what Donald Trump is doing. But, you know, we were, that, that was, it was as bad. I mean, now, now we just lurch from people, you know, half the country being mad about whatever, whatever the decision is one way or the other. But there was a real concern with Reagan and it was framed this way that, that he will start to place conservative justices on the, on the Supreme court. And at the time, even uh, Republican presidents, justices appointed by Republican presidents had turned out to be, fairly progressive or what we call liberal back in the day. And even the decision, the Roe v. Wade decision was, was, uh, uh, was written by, um, I think an appointee of Richard Nixon um, in, in the court. So there was concern that Reagan being an ideologue would pick ideologues. Uh, and in fact, he, he picked one in Robert Bork, who um, I was struck when I was looking at, at bits of his testimony before the Senate is, you know, he, he makes Donald Trump in certain respects look like not an arrogant man. Uh, Robert Bork was, and he was intellectually arrogant too. And he was uh, intellectually um, uh, so intellectual that he had no kind of appreciation for how his uh, intellectual positions would affect people. 
Um, and that came through, very, very dismissive of, of people. And in addition to that, he was notorious. Uh, well, there were two things, other things that have struck me, if you look at it. One is no one would let him walk into a confirmation hearing looking the way he did. He had this kind of scraggly goatee thing going on and looked like somebody that you wouldn't want your young children to go, you know, be with in the park type of a thing. He was creepy looking. And, um, and then he had been the Solicitor General um, in, the, in the Nixon administration in uh, 1974 um, and came to fame uh, the night of the Saturday Night Massacre, or what's come to, what was known as the Saturday Night Massacre, when Richard Nixon, deja vu, ordered Elliot Richardson, the Attorney General, to fire the special prosecutor. And Elliot Richardson refused and resigned. And then Nixon ordered the number two in the Justice Department to do the same thing, and he refused and resigned. Um, and lo and behold, it came down to Robert Bork, the number three in the Justice Department, the Solicitor General, who fired the special prosecutor, um, thus leading to the, the eventual end of, of the Watergate investigation. So he was notorious, um, but then he was also going to be the, uh, to the right of Antonin Scalia, as we've come to know him now, or Clarence Thomas um, on the court and drive the court in a, in a hard uh, right way. So the thinking went, um, and, and I tend to believe that that's true. So it came down to Ted Kennedy, who at that point, um, his presidential ambitions were over. It had been speculated that he would run for president every election since 1968 when his brother was assassinated. And um, in 72 and 76, he finally ran in 80, lost to Jimmy Carter in the primary. So then he was kind of coming into his own as, um, as, as just a leader in the Senate. Um, and he was, he was on the Judiciary Committee. Uh, he may have been chair at the time. He may have been chair of health and uh, health education and pensions, I don't, I forget which, but he was certainly a senior member of the committee and a commanding presence. And it came to him to take Bork on, which resulted in this very famous frame um, where he talked about what Robert Bork's America would look like. So that's, that's a long-winded short bit of history. Um, so one of my questions, you mentioned that like the court was already politicized, but many conservatives, especially Mitch McConnell, point to Robert Burke's um, nomination as the turning point of really when um, the court became politicized. And my question for you is, was this rejection of Bork, because Kennedy's speech was so successful in swaying the American public, was it worth it? Um, because this politicization of the Supreme Court has damaged our democracy, as you can see, it's gotten even worse, more partisan. And is it is that worth it compared to if Bork was nominated for another 30 years and served in cases like? Yeah, so it's, it's a really interesting frame. Let's, let's, let's discuss it a little bit. So um, let me flip it back on you and sort of ask you the question. Would we be in a better position if America had been Borked? And, <laughs> and, and the court took a rightward turn in its decisions if Robert Bork, I forget when he passed away, but if Robert Bork had been on the court when marriage equality was decided, when the ACA was upheld, uh, when Roe wasn't repealed, would those things have been different? And if so, would that have been better because we hadn't, quote, politicized the court? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, that's just one more vote that a lot of things would have changed, but in many ways, um, our, one, like a fundamental part of our democracy has sort of 
been politicized, it's no longer as independent as it once was. And that's right. speaking to how successful Kennedy was. Yeah. And, and um, you know, they're, they're going to, we're going we're gonna, to, we will probably have, well, we're going to have a six, three uh, uh, conservative majority on the court and Republicans have won um, one popular vote election in the past 32 years and yet are going to be able to appoint uh, six. So you could say that, you know, by hyper-focusing on the, on who's going to be borked um, in this particular time, Kavanaugh was, they did it to Merrick Garland, the, you know, that, that actually taking a step back and, and seeing that there's some fundamental um, uh, fun, fundamental foundational problems with our with our institution that uh, that are crying out to be addressed, and ultimately that's where the the politicization. I think I think that frankly that's what you're seeing um, in this year's election, um, and so therefore you've got people who are just hyper focused on the courts, and that's Mitch McConnell. The only reason that uh, Ed Markey is in Washington is because. Mitch McConnell keeps putting up slates of uh, slates of judges to be uh, to be processed through. Uh, increasingly younger, I'm waiting for the first teenage uh, conservative justice to be appointed to the to the Supreme Court. We'll be around for the next hundred years, and uh, um, but uh, but yeah. So so here we we kind of are. I mean, is it possible that something short of the stark contrast of Robert Bork's America would have gotten us a more civil? Um, an inclusive judiciary, or did, or do we have a more inclusive judiciary, right? Four women out of 111 justices in the history of the United States—that's, I guess, more inclusive than it was 30 years ago uh, when we had one. But the, um, uh, you know, would, would would we be in a better place? Or what's a better way to do it? I'll throw that back out to you. I think an interesting, well, that's been brought up recently. A better way to do it maybe is. Um, term limits, because this idea of appointing someone really young, like Amy Coney Barrett, 40, I think she's 48. I mean, that's 30, 40 years if she's on the court. And so it's such a, a huge battle sets up, but maybe there would be a less of a conflict if there was term limits and you knew, well, they only are going to serve 10 years. Um, maybe that would set up, make it more civil because it's less like there's a shorter legacy or um, tenure on court. Yeah, and, 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 you know, I wonder what the possibility of, I know it's one of the things that's on the table in addition to, quote, packing the court, but the, um, you know, my thought that term limits uh, that would have to be ratified by a body that if I belonged to it, I would be one of the youngest members of, uh, of the Senate uh, is probably unlikely. I mean, uh, Dianne Feinstein, who I think is on judiciary, um, was just reelected uh, uh, two years ago at the age of 86 to a six-year term. So uh, she, you know, she makes, uh, you know, she makes Joe Biden look like a kid in some, in some respects. Uh, so, so there's that. I also, I, I, I kind of help thinking because she just passed away that if, if Justice Ginsburg had been term limited, um, ooh, I don't know if I like that idea. So would I take a, a Sam Alito, not term limited too, to get a, a, a Justice Ginsburg? Maybe <laughs> I might do that. Um, connecting back to the recent passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I kind of wanted to touch upon um, kind of the implications of Trump replacing her with uh, potentially Amy Coney Barrett, who in the wake of recording this podcast, she was just... Um, nominated for the seat. So um, Brett and I were earlier discussing kind of the fact that Amy Coney Barrett will be able to walk through all these doors that Ruth Bader Ginsburg opened for her 
and potentially close them behind her to prevent other people from going through them. So I wanted, wondered if you could touch upon that point of having such a liberal icon, such as RBG, replaced by someone who is seemingly her opposite. Yeah, it's, um, um, it, it, it's, it's, right, it's hard to think about. Um, maybe less hard than thinking that Clarence Thomas replaced, replaced Thurgood Marshall on the court. And um, you talk about slamming doors that um, for, you know, with the bloodshed, blood had been spilled for over a century um, to to secure rights that were guaranteed by the court. And then Clarence Thomas is the one who comes in after Thurgood Marshall and starts to dismantle those things. Um, so yes, there's outrage all around. Now, uh, now women can be as outraged as men, as uh, as African Americans about uh, about the, the court pick. Um, what the reality is that um, we should all be kind of outraged by these things. If if we have to, I think, in an optimistic way, if um, if uh, if history bends toward justice, uh, we also know that there's a bit of a pendulum swing to that. That it it's, it goes out and it comes back, maybe not as far, out a little further, and back not as far. Uh, the other thing, um, you know, and, and and again, this is this is uh, this is a, a really hard year to get through. It's been a dumpster fire of a year. Um, and today uh, we, I woke up, there's a dead raccoon in my backyard next to my back porch. I don't know if that's a sign of the coming apocalypse, but um, you know, the, the fact that we have to put our faith um, in John Roberts, in John Roberts court. And that, that uh, when we're looking at that in a six to three, you know, is John Roberts going to be with the hearing on the, on the, on the challenge to the ACA, which seems like a weak challenge coming up. How is he going to navigate that? You know, is he going to want her on the court with the 6-3 majority and the first act of her court, you could argue, as opposed to his, is the repeal of ACA that he was the deciding vote on keeping uh, just a couple of years ago. So it'll be, uh, I mean, it'll be fast. I will say just as uh, from a campaign issue, um, Democrats love talking about, well, um, uh, Ronald Reagan or George Bush or George Bush or Donald Trump are going to pack the court because that's a big issue and the people who care about that raise money. Ultimately, it's not a thing that most people care about. And the scary part is, I think, is that, you know, the repeal of Roe v. Wade for most people will uh, not have an impact because it'll devolve to the states. The people who are um, most exercised over this, people, let's say in Massachusetts, aren't going to be materially affected. It's going to be the repeal will lead to then other things. But in states where you have very few options, um, and the states have already put in uh, in in, uh, in in tough laws against uh, against abortion, and then the federal government takes the last remaining thing away from you, um, the people who are, are paying attention less um, are the ones who are going to be most affected and most affected, obviously, again, by the ACA repeal, if that happens. Um, I have private insurance I provided for my employees at the Liberty Square Group. It's not going to be affected. But if the ACA is repealed, it's going to be people who need that lifeline and need that health insurance. We're going to find that gone. Then what do they do? These are people who hold no political power um, in the country. So the, the you know, even as opposed to the Senate being controlled by Democrats, well, the president's even being controlled by Democrats. The court is the only place when when the legislature fails or the executive fails to lead, where they have stood up for people who are left behind, 
were in need of help. And it's scary to think that that might change. And we go back to a, a court from the 19th century where it was privileged uh, in a different way, because obviously the court's going to look diver more diverse than a Roger Taney court um, of the Dred Scott decision. But really, it's going to be looking out for protecting the rights of a, of a distinct privileged minority. And that's troubling. Um, back to Amy Comey Barrett. So in the upcoming weeks, we're going to be watching these hearings um, in the Senate Judiciary. And I'm wondering what you think um, has the biggest potential to bork her. So for our audience who doesn't know what bork means, to kill politi politically. But Senator Kennedy like destroyed um, Bork's um, public image, so it's now literally a verb. Um, so I'm wondering what you think, whether it's abortion, her religious beliefs. Um, she, people have uh, mentioned like her affiliation with this like super Christian group called People of Praise. Um, what do you think it has the biggest potential to Bork her, or even how rushed the process is? Yeah, I think first of all, I, I love you know I love the way this this kind of all works that. Um, uh, with the, with the, with the, with, with language, you know, like he couldn't have had a more perfect name for that. Like you couldn't, you couldn't say, Oh, you've been Roberts. You know, <laughs> like that it wouldn't work. You've been barked. <laughs> you know, it's just like, you can, <laughs> like it gives you a visual of, but you've been barked bonk, you know, or whatever. And, uh, <laughs> and dragged out. So I, I just love that. Um, so, and I, I think this is, this is my frustration with Democrats and certainly, I mean, having worked for, for Senator Kennedy and, and now with, with doing, working with Ed Markey and all of these senators, there's like Senate speak and it's all very, very process heavy. So they love talking about it because so much of what they do is got, you got to get through this and back at a committee and consensus over to the house and back this way. And then they, they get shorthand for it and the way they talk about it. And, and Ed Markey loves acronyms and stuff, you know, like the Health Education Labor and Pensions Committee, which is the committee Kennedy chaired uh, when, I, when I worked for him in the 90s. Like they spent a lot of time on it because it spelled out help, you know, health, education, labor, and pensions. So, you know, that's the way they think about these things. And so that's the way they've been talking about it. How dare you? You, Merrick Garland, he didn't get, that was, this, that was a campaign, that was an election year, and now you're doing this and that's hypocritical. And nobody cares. Nobody cares. And ultimately, you know, I think, you know, calm down. Um, Obama was the president. The Senate was in Republicans. They killed it. It was their right. It was his right to nominate. It was their right to kill it or not take it out. That's their right in the, in the advice consent. And here Trump has named and the Senate, if, you know, we can hold it off until January 3rd or 4th, then we, we're going to have a different Senate, hopefully, and be able to stop it potentially. Um, that, that's all within, and nobody cares because nobody, nobody's looking at the sausage making and the process stuff here. But I think what they are looking at and what you saw Joe Biden do early in the debate, I, I think it's very hard to, uh, you know, the first, well, most of it was in incomprehensible, but his point when he went on the Supreme Court issue was the ACA and the repeal of the ACA. And I think that's, if, if that's how we can, that's how she gets borked. If, um, I mean, my question, if I were on the committee to her would be, um, cause she'll, she obviously is going to know just, just what her answer is. That's not going to let me know that she's going to vote to repeal the ACA. But I would say, um, I, I'm not going to ask you if you're going to repeal the ACA, you're going to repeal the ACA. I know you're going to do that. 
unless you would like to disabuse me of that notion right now, you are going to repeal it. I'd like to get her on the record sort of doing, doing that. We're talking about the, what the problems are with it or what potentially might be unconstitutional about it. Um, because that, that both from, I think, from what we know of, of just what impacts, um, so you know, even if, not that I, I think they would repeal marriage equality, but you're, you're, when you're talking about what repeal or what bad decision would affect the most people, the repeal of the ACA affects the most people. And so, um, you know, and that, and that's, um, and so I think it's, it's a winning issue kind of both politically and frankly, from a policy standpoint. So I think that's it. I mean, there's nothing, you know, immediately people started to kind of attack her for her lifestyle or different things. And I, I think those, those are kind of not, don't work. I mean, if you look at Robert Bork, you know, he looked like somebody you'd take pleasure in voting against. Um, but, but, uh, you know, um, and, and, and even Brett Kavanaugh didn't sort of meet that, meet that threshold. Um, you know, we could, we could make fun of him, you know, frat boy image and, you know, odious person and, uh, you know, sexual predator and all those things. But I think, you know, um, no one's going to look at, at, uh, at, at Cloney Barrett, uh, and sort of think that there's a reason why she should not be on the court. It's going to be somebody. So we've got to make it about an issue and whether it's Cloney Barrett or somebody else that Trump appoints, they're going to, repeal the ACA. Job one. That kind of connects to um, one of our next questions. So what would you recommend to Amy Coney Barrett if you were her communications or uh, public relations representative before the nomination process? You mentioned how you'd like to see her answer questions, but how do you think that she should answer questions about topics like abortion or the ACA or being rushed through nomination before the election? You know, it's interesting that, um, that Ginsburg, in, when she, during her nomination hearings, could clearly state that she was a supporter of Roe v. Wade and, and still get through uh, with a, you know, and very few people, very few votes against her, if any, it's hard to remember. Um, but Chloe Barrett isn't going to be able to, well, she could do that, I suppose. That would be an interesting way. They've got the votes in the Senate. Um, but I assume she's not because Susan Collins and, um, and, and others who might be pro-choice have to get through November 3rd um, and having having a nominee either make Susan Collins vote before the election or have Coney Barrett say something affirmative about her support for the repeal of the ACA is not helpful. So um, I think my advice to her would be um, make no, no news here. No news. Just, you know, let Democrats talk. Don't, uh, don't pull a Biden and take the bait uh, when when somebody attacks you, uh, either personally or for your for your your lifestyle choices or for your positions on the court. Absorb it and take the fawning um, love that you're going to get from the Republicans, and don't overreact to that. And get out as quickly as possible, and you'll be on the Supreme Court. Um, another, like, I wonder if I'm 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 assuming she will be asked about. Um, what happens in the case of a scenario where the election is contested? Like our debate, the recent presidential debate showed that Trump might not accept the results and it might be like a 2000 situation where the Supreme Court is responsible for deciding the victor or just going through the election results. I wonder, do you think she'll recuse herself or do you think, like if she is nominated and it was Trump's appointee, 
and it's a very political process. I wonder what she will answer in that kind of question. You know, I, I think for me, if I were advising her or, or, or um, you know, I, th I think that's an easier one to answer because if a Roberts 6-3 majority court affirms an election for Donald Trump uh, contrary to the results, we have bigger problems in this country <laughs> than that. And I think that, um, I, I, I find that scenario unlikely, not that Donald Trump won't contest it or any of that type of stuff, but that the court in any way would affirm it. Because um, if we do, we've got, you know, um, you know, gas up the car, get your visa to Canada and, you know, and go, um, but because uh, that's where we're going to be. So, I, but I, I don't think that's I don't think that's going to happen. Um, so, in terms of, but also uh, Neil Gorsuch in his um, in his confirmation hearing, he in asked questions. I think maybe it was about the impeachment or the investigation. Said you know very clearly, no, you know I'm, I I wouldn't uh, do do anything to impede those things. If I remember, that's the issue. But he 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 contradicted Trump. And Trump, uh, I think he was even a little upset at him uh, for, for saying the things that he did. Once you're nominated, um, you know, I suppose technically it could be withdrawn, but he doesn't have time to do that. So I think she's got a little bit of freedom to kind of play it more um, independently than, uh, um, than otherwise. So um, she's already nominated, but if she is confirmed and joins the Supreme Court, do you think that the legitimacy of the Supreme Court can be upheld um, if she is confirmed right before the election and Biden then wins? Um, why do you think that voters should believe in its legitimacy if they had no influence on the Supreme Court bench? So we, um, we are very uh, accepting in this country. I think it's actually one of the, I, I, would, I would have thought in 2000, um, when the popular vote went the other way as electoral college, America would wake up and say, what do you mean? There's, there's an electoral college that decides it and stop my vote. I didn't know that, <laughs> you know, uh, cause it, it hadn't happened for a long time, uh, before that. Um, but we didn't. And, um, in 1974, Nixon resigned and, um, we got Gerald Ford and then because Spiro Agnew had resigned, we got Gerald Ford as vice president. Then when he became president, we got Nelson Rockefeller as vice president. And for two years, we had a president and a vice president who hadn't been elected to anything nationally, but were our president or vice president. So, and nobody said anything. It was completely legitimate. That's why the constitution works. But we're all, we're very, in this country, I think we're very, we're very much, most of us sort of with the attitude of, that's fine. You know, unless you come after me, um, I'm fine, largely. So we rely a lot on our institutions uh, and have. Um, so, you know, what's the tipping point? What's going to be the tipping point? Um, I tend to, I would put the, you know, if we're on the, what, what do they put the, uh, the doomsday clock is like uh, one minute to midnight or, or two, you know, it's always it's three seconds to midnight. It's one being a uh, Cold War child, it's always like we always had the, do the doomsday clock while we were, we were thinking about the doomsday clock while we were tucking and rolling under our desks. Um, so we were, I'm thinking about the doomsday clock. It's, like, it's okay. It's only five seconds from midnight. Um, <laughs> we'll be okay. Um, it, so if we're, if the, if the uh, 
uh, anarchy, uh, the time of anarchy or the, the coming race war is doomsday clock is, are we five seconds away? Are we four seconds away? It's, we're getting closer. We're as close as I think as, as we've, we've been, um, you know, since what, the Civil War. I mean, it, this, I was a little kid during, during the Vietnam protests and the, those, they seem uh, not as big as, as this that we're going all through now. And I think there's a confluence of two things that are happening that hasn't happened before. And I think, frankly, the court's going to play a huge part in this. Um, already people your age, you're in a demographic that is majority minority. Uh, the last demographic that will turn majority of minority or people my age and older or people 65 and older, even older than me, will be the last one to change as, as people in their 30s now will get to be. But in 2045, um, we'll be a majority minority country. Um, and I think that's what's underlying a lot of this stuff. And, you know, for most, I think, not in an overt racist way, although now I used to think the president was just a racist and now I think he might be a, a white supremacist is that, you know, for most people it's, it, there is that unease and there's that unrest. And particularly if you're uh, poor um, and in, in this country, because you, we visit petty humiliations on poor people every day. I don't care whether you're poor and white in, in some place or you're, or you're a, a recent immigrant and you're poor. It's everything, every infraction costs more money. Money costs more money because you can't borrow it at the same rate. You don't get the same, obviously, tax advice that the president of the United States gets. You don't get any of these things. You take your, you need your car to go to work and then it's got a tail light out and therefore you get a ticket and that's in the shop and then you can't go to work and then you've got to, you know, there's just these things that people think about all the time. Well, that, there's that agitation that underlies everything. And it's, and I think those are people who, frankly, some of them were Obama voters who then voted for Trump. They're looking for a, a solution. They're looking for something that's going to help them. And increasingly, I, I think we lost in part states of, like Ohio and, and Michigan because Donald Trump said, I'll give you everything you ask for. And what did Hillary Clinton say? There's nothing here for you. You should move. And I will take a false promise every day over that. And so we, by being honest about their cold job or whatever, wasn't giving them what they, what they need. And I think Biden's done a little bit of a better job than that, but you've got that going on. And then the second thing that you've got going on is, you know, both one party in 2016 nominated somebody who wasn't a member of the party. Donald Trump was not a Republican. We almost did the same thing because Bernie Sanders isn't a Democrat. He's an actual socialist. He will tell you that. He is not a Democrat. So we would have had two people of the nominees of the party who aren't actually members of the party. So we've hit the end of the Democratic and the Republican Party. And there have been six political systems in the United States, in the history of the United States. They last about 30, 35 or so years. 68 was the end of the last one, the, the New Deal era. 68 to now is the way we govern ourselves by the parties. That's over. And this is not the epic presidential election year, 2020. I think this is almost incidental. Whoever's elected will be a one-term president, except Donald Trump, if he loses, will absolutely run for president in 2024. But he won't do it, I'm guessing, as a Republican. He will do it as Donald Trump. And people will go follow Donald Trump, and he'll be a power. And then we'll have to reconstitute ourselves in some form. And the battle right now is over the, over the, 
progressive Green New Deal, Medicare for all with the moderate, the moderate Joe, Joe Biden wing of the party. Joe Biden's going to be a one-term president. So we'll, that will be our battle. And then Republicans will be freed from the basement where they've been held captive for four years. And they'll, they'll figure out whether there's enough of them to form their own party or whether some of them will peel off and become Democrats and some of them will peel off and become Trumpsters. And uh, so we've got that epic political battle going on that happens generationally. Um, and then we've got, uh, and the reason, not to digress, but the reason why we're, politics ignores your generation, particularly Democrats, is that um, if Joe Biden gets 1% of the white vote, more of the white vote than Hillary Clinton did, he flips three states and wins the presidency. If turnout of, of voters 18 to 25 increases by 30%, 30%, 43 to 73, Joe Biden would flip one state, Michigan. So there's just, you either got to like move to Montana people and get, you know, start flipping some of these other states, spread yourself out. You're way too, you're way too concentrated. Go to, go to bad schools in different, different little states. Spread yourself out. No, I, I mean, I appreciate like your take on the history of like the party system. It is, does feel like a turning point. And I, I do think this, uh, if Trump is able to appoint three justices, this will be his legacy. This is going to be the 30, 40 years that we're living and growing up with. And it's going to be a very conservative Supreme Court, regardless of what the party system is. That's great. Donald Trump will be, uh, long after he's dead, he'll be like that spicy meal that just keeps coming back up on you for another 30 years. You know? <laughs> Bad memory. Yeah, definitely. Well, we have one more final question that we ask every guest that comes on the Blue Gab. So, if you could nominate any fictional character, real or animated, to be President of the United States, who would it be and why? Uh, I should have known you were going to do this because I think I've heard you do this before with other, with other, uh, on other podcasts. Uh, gee, I've um, not been much on fictional characters. Um, uh, I would, uh, uh, yeah, um, I would, um, uh, who's, uh, who's the dad in uh, To Kill a Mockingbird? Atticus. Oh, Atticus? Finch. Yeah, Atticus Finch, yeah. I, I would, uh, I would, you'd have to update his his views, I think, on race a little bit, but I would I think he's got the right right to the, the right temperament to be president of the United States. What about you, Brendan? Um, I'm thinking Professor McGonagall from Harry Potter. <laughs> she just gives a strong uh, female uh, like maternal vibe. I would I think I would respect her, and I think the country would. <laughs> Yeah, we ask this question at the end of every episode, and usually it's people um, from the West Wing is probably the most popular, I would say. So um, I always joke, I'm like, Aaron Sorkin, if you're listening, like, we want to talk to you. We'd love to talk to you. But um, always the West Wing, always Madam Secretary is really popular. Um, so is Scandal. But I like the diversity today. we got some book characters. Um, I don't think we've ever had actually any book characters. Those are some good options. That's because I haven't seen any of those TV shows. So you haven't seen The West Wing? I no. Feel like would, I feel like that would be like on repeat for you. I don't know. I think I'd be like, oh, come on, it's not gonna happen. <laughs> it's not real. <laughs> yeah, That's as if true. that'd be fun. <laughs> you know. I know there's been, um, especially with quarantine, a big uptick in people watching The West Wing because I think they're like. It's some sort of like political escapism, like watching and you're like, oh, wouldn't that be nice? Like imagine if it, our, our politics <laughs> were like this. 
Um, so oh, so I'll, make, I'll, make, I'll, I'll make a recommendation. If you want to watch something that's more realistic, watch Yes Minister. It's, um, it's British and from the, you know, sort of seventies and it's, uh, and it's the, in their system, right? They've got the, the permanent secretary and then the political secretary. So it's how the political, um, remember it's yes minister that became yes prime minister. Uh, but it's always got, he's got the bureaucrats who run the place and run circles around him. And as a, as a staffer, I always loved that. Cause I always thought that I, I see, I can see myself in that. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Scott. We really appreciate it. Thank you. And thanks for doing it. <laughs>